because there is a tension there. On the one hand, there's this this longing for greatness, but at the same time, an awareness that true greatness comes from acknowledging our littleness. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Crab and the Cross podcast. I'm your host, Mary Rose, and my guest today is Leonard Wathen. Leonard is a youth minister and a director of religious education, and he's also a secular Carmelite. Um, The Carmelites are a religious order that has been around for over a thousand years. Most of their members become monks or nuns, um, but secular members live an ordinary life in the world. Leonard is married. He has a family. Um, but they go through um, many years of formation in the Carmelite spirituality and the Carmelite tradition. And then once they take their their vows, they they um, take on certain spiritual practices um, in the Carmelite tradition. So we talk a little bit about his um, kind of reversion to the Catholic faith and how he got into ministry and and how he was first drawn to, the Carmelites, and a little bit about what that process of um, formation looks like. And then we get into just a great conversation about spirituality, about holiness, about some of the great saints in the contemplative Carmelite tradition. Many of the great well-known mystics in the life of the church were Carmelites. Um, And so naturally, this conversation leads us to a discussion about the spiritual life, about prayer, about holiness. Um, and I think it's a it's a really fruitful conversation um, because holiness can often seem like this huge list of do's and don'ts. You don't do these sins and you do these various prayers and spiritual practices. And it's like kind of true, but also at the end of the day, holiness is, is about the one thing necessary, which is growing deeper in relationship with Christ. Um, So it's a beautiful conversation. Uh, I think you'll find it really encouraging and uplifting, and hopefully will also inspire you to dive into some of the great Carmelite saints if you haven't already done so. We are nearing the end of season three. Um, Two more episodes after this. I mentioned last episode that I am in the process of getting merch, Crab and the Cross merch. So Make sure you're following me on social media, Instagram at the Crab and the Cross podcast or on Twitter at Mary Rose Depp to stay tuned for that launch. You can also support me um, by clicking the link in the description that says support this podcast. You can support for as low as 99 cents per month. Um, And if you do become a monthly supporter, you will lock in some free merch. I'm getting magnets and laptop stickers. Well, I guess the stickers could be used for anything. Laptop, water bottle, forehead. Um, But yeah, monthly subscribers will get those as a welcome gift. Um, Details forthcoming. All right. And now here is my conversation with Leonard Wathen. Leonard Wathen has been the Director of Religious Education at St. Aloysius Church for 19 years. He holds a Master's Degree in Theology from Christendom College 
and an advanced apostolic catechetical diploma from the Holy See. He's the author of three books, Who Do You Say That I Am? Scriptural Reflections on Becoming a Disciple of Jesus, Follow Me, Scriptural Reflections on Living as a Disciple of Jesus, and Remain in Me, Scriptural Reflections on Growing as a Disciple of Jesus. Leonard made definitive promises as a secular Carmelite in the Our Lady of Mount Carmel secular community in Port Tobacco, Maryland this past year. Leonard and his wife, Nicole, are natives of St. Mary's County, Maryland, and live in Callaway with their four children. Leonard, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Mary Rose. Great <laughs> to be with you. I see you wore a brown shirt today. <laughs> I did. I figured I would represent the Carmelites well today. Right. I didn't know they were making polos now. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Everybody's got polos. Is that, that, is that <laughs> what you get when you when you make your, your promises that they give you a shirt? <laughs> Someone in the order did give me uh, the shirt, but no, that's not official. Okay, uh, okay. That's not like the swag bag that you get. (laughs) (laughs) Not exactly. We do get a cool scapular, though. Okay, okay. Like a bigger one than the uh, the little ones you can buy? Yes, we wear a big ceremonial one that's like 12 inches, probably 12 by 12, something like that. Okay, okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we're, we're all about giving people like a special little outfit, you know. <laughs> it's like you become a, a, a bishop, you get a special hat, you know. <laughs> well, we didn't get special hats, but, you know, maybe we can make some requests. Right, right, right. <laughs> okay, so let's talk a little about your background first, because you've worked for the church for 19 years, which is quite a career. Um, I think especially working in ministry, there, there's often, well, f- especially full-time ministry, there's kind of a high turnover rate um, because it's, Often um, a disproportionate amount of work for the pay. <laughs> that that's true, but I figure I'm gonna keep doing it until I get it right, and I haven't done yeah, that yet. So. There you go. <laughs> right, right, right. And so as long as you're like you know passing the bar just enough, you know you don't get <laughs> let go. <laughs> exactly. Um, so how did you get your start in ministry? Was that a career path that you were interested in, even like? as a high schooler or going to college or was that something where you stumbled into and were like, Oh, I guess I should, you know, get some, some background education on this. It's definitely not something I was thinking about in high school. So when I was in high school, I had intentions of, of studying physics. That was was my plan. So I've been a Catholic all of my life and came from a, a great Catholic family. But like many Catholics, was pretty lukewarm in my faith. Mm-hmm. I was going to mass every Sunday and and was doing the things I was supposed to do. But I wouldn't say that I really understood and appreciated the Catholic faith all that much. But in my junior year, I started dating my now wife Nicole, and she was a Baptist. Oh, uh, so her, <laughs> this was in high school. This was in okay. high school. Right? Oh, wow. Yes. Uh, we didn't get married in high school, though. Okay. So. <laughs> but, um, but her Baptist faith, along with the, the faith of a number of our friends, both inspired and challenged me. Hmm. So it inspired me on the one hand because they spoke of Jesus in a way that I wasn't familiar with. So they, they spoke of Jesus more av- as a friend. They spoke of him as, as a savior. You know, I, I thought, more of, thought of him more as the, the rule maker, I mm. guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and... The, the intimacy that they had with Jesus was inspiring. But on the flip side, they also challenged, of course, my, my Catholic convictions. Yeah. I, I wondered why I was Catholic instead of being Baptist or Methodist or whatever else might be available. And to make a long story short, started really diving into 
works of apologetics. Uh, at that time, um, Scott Hahn was was really big deal, and he still is. But yeah. but um, but those were best selling books at the time, and I, I was really eating them up, and um, read other works like, of course, the Catechism eventually, and and things like that. And um, by the by the time I had graduated high school and was preparing to go into college. I was really on fire hmm. for my faith. Now, right around that t- turning point, though, of course, is when you're starting to make big decisions about what you're going to do for the rest of your life. So when I was a high school senior, I was making plans to, to study physics and uh, applied to UMBC, applied for a, a science scholarship there, which, which I got a uh, Thankfully, and, and it was not a great, great uh, opportunity. Mm-hmm. But then was having the, this change of heart, thinking maybe the Lord's calling me to do something different. I really didn't know what, because yeah. I didn't know what options were out there. But I, I thought I like theology a lot more than I like science at this point. Hmm. And I felt God was calling me to do something in the church, and I didn't know what that would look like. Um, so I went off to UMBC, but was was gradually uh, convicted that um, I wanted to study something different. So actually, before even setting foot on campus, I had undeclared my major. Um, <laughs> so I was, I was no longer a physics major and was, um, was looking into other options on campus and found that I could do an interdisciplinary studies major with a concentration in Catholic education. Um, really? At yeah. UMBC? Yeah. So um, interdisciplinary studies is basically a design your own major kind mm. of thing. So mm-hmm. It's a, it's a process where you sit down with a panel of, of professors and you lay out exactly what you're interested in doing and what courses you think could make that happen. And uh, ultimately, I was able to do something called Catholic education, which, of course, isn't something that they offer, yeah. but something that was able to be tailored. Um, but I still had no idea what, what the future held as far as what I would do in the church. Because I came from a small parish where the... the, the, the Priest did everything. You know, there was no yeah. s- there was no lay staff other than a secretary, right. um, which uh, secretaries are very important. But but that's not where I saw myself. Right. Um, <laughs> so, um, as my senior year then of college um, approached, I heard through the grapevine that Saint Aloysius Church was looking for a, a director of religious education. Um, actually. The, the pastor reached out to me because because my roommate um, was a parishioner of St. Aloysius Church. His parents had been doing the role of DRE as volunteers, mm-hmm. and so they knew that I was in the market, I guess. Uh-huh, yeah. And so so he reached out, said, you should apply. I applied, and now I've been there for, tw- for 19 years. Wow, so. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, been, it's been a fun ride. It yeah. is a fun ride. Yeah. So did you have somebody guiding you on like what to read um especially when you were still in high school like looking for apologetics books like were you just kind of i mean i don't i, I don't want i don't want to make you seem old but like were you googling things on the internet or did you have like priests or others like guiding you we had the internet okay. <laughs> <laughs> but just barely it was really yeah <laughs> yeah I, th- I think you're only like 10 years older than me so it's not that big of a gap but <laughs> yeah no there was there wasn't really any anyone who was pushing me in a particular direction. Mm-hmm. I mean, and in some ways that was definitely to my detriment um, because when I went into to working for the parish, 
I, I had been I'd been the one that was that was learning all of this stuff and and, and that filled my head not only with knowledge but with pride because mm. <laughs> I had this conviction this uh, false conviction that I was going to come in and just save the church mm. but it turns out that that doesn't happen yeah <laughs> so, yeah um, yeah so um, you know part of the last 19 years has just been learning humility and realizing that uh, you just got to let God do the work right. Oh, I know. I actually, I just started, you've probably read this. I just started reading Soul of the Apostolate. Yes. Um, and yeah, he already like the first couple pages, he's like, if you're trying to rely on your own talents and, you know, just thinking like, I can do all of this because I have the knowledge or I have the skills, but you're not, you know, supplementing it with prayer. It's like, right. you're wasting your time. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I've always been an autodidact, you know, taught, taught myself mm. um, in a number of, of areas. I, I just... I'm a very curious person, yeah, yeah, which is has its its, its uh, strengths. So, I thrived in l- reading a bunch of theology books, and I still do to a certain extent. Of, um, I'm not like reading PhD level stuff a whole lot, but sure. you know what I mean. Still learning what I need to learn, and um, yeah, that served me well. Yeah, uh, yeah, with, w- with humility. <laughs> right, right. So, your wife, when did she convert? So my wife, although she was Baptist when I met her, was actually baptized Catholic. Oh, wow. Um, so, so she had been uh, initially baptized Catholic, received First Communion, but then shortly thereafter started going to the Baptist church. So by the time that I met her, she considered herself Baptist mm-hmm. and had some a little bit of hard feelings towards the Catholic church. We dated through high school um, and then into college, but by the time we went off to college, she was already pretty... Uh, reluctantly convinced of the Catholic faith. Interesting, um, yeah. And, and yeah. Uh, then she went to confession, be- got confirmed, and uh, and has, has since grown to really love the Catholic yeah. faith. But, you know, initially she she had to you know get over some of the baggage that, that she experienced in the right. Catholic faith. Because many of us experience the Catholic faith as, as um, depending on our experience, uh, as, as kind of boring and... Mm-hmm. and um, the music isn't necessarily as exciting as it is in evangelical sure. churches. Yeah. Um, so, on the surface, um, sometimes um, the Catholic faith looks a little bit boring. But when you get below the surface, you see this depth of, of beauty that um, I certainly came to see, and she has since come to see. Right. Absolutely. Did you all go to the same college? We did intentionally. Okay. So. Intentionally. That's good. <laughs> right. That's good. Now I have to ask, since you were like kind of having a sort of reversion in your faith, you know, into high school, into college, was there ever a time where you were like, oh, maybe I should like discern the priesthood? Or were you always like pretty much like, no, like Nicole, she's she's my girl. Like I know where that's God, where God's leading me. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I wouldn't say that I that I explored it too much. Yeah. Um, so I. The thought of, of priesthood had, had kind of uh, crept in my mind at a very young age, but um, but when at the time I was in high school and college, I instead had the sense that, that God was really calling me, not just to marriage in a general sense, but mm-hmm. to marriage with Nicole. You know, it, mm. was a, it was a particular vocation, if you know what I mean. Yeah, um, yeah. So it wasn't just like, I want to get married and... And I better find someone. It was right. instead. I think God wants me to marry this person. So, wow. so wow. Um, that was a great gift. 
Yeah. Not, not many people get to marry their high school sweethearts. And, and they were very Both my <laughs> sisters did. Okay, so <laughs> I don't know. God hasn't been so kind to me, but. <laughs> I'm sure he's been kind enough. He's ways. been Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so how, um, so you're, cause you're kind of from Southern Maryland. Uh, I know the poor tobacco Carmelites there, you know, Charles County, but did you encounter them at all? Like while you were growing up? The only time I remember encountering them was probably in either late middle school or high school. Mm-hmm. Um, our parish, Our Lady's Church, which is where I grew up going uh, to Mass, we, we did a little mini field trip to, um, to Carmel of Port Tobacco, to the monastery. And that was a, it was a nice trip, but at that time, of course, I had no understanding of the life of a secular Carmelite yeah, or, or anything yeah, yeah. like that. It was it was just a neat place to visit. Right, right, right. Look at these ladies in their medieval robes <laughs> and, you know, behind the gate. <laughs> right. Yeah. So when did you first start to consider pursuing the secular Carmelite, I guess, I guess you call it a vocation? Yes. I, I was trying to think... Uh, I'm trying to rem- remember exactly when I first heard of the, the secular Carmelites. Mm-hmm. And to the best of my recollection, it was probably towards the end of, of college um, or maybe just shortly after college. I heard about the secular Carmelites from, um, from Pat Copsey, whom I know you know. Oh, okay, a, yeah. A, who runs a local Catholic bookstore. And she, um, at the time, was in formation as a secular Carmelite, and I was volunteering a lot at the store. And she had recommended it as something that was perhaps of interest. And so I became aware of the fact that it's possible for a layperson to become officially part of the Carmelite order or other orders Mm -hmm. as a secular member of the order. And that intrigued me. Um, And shortly after I started working at St. Aloysius, I do remember looking into it. But at that time, there was one group that met there, one secular group that met on Sunday mornings, um, mm-hmm. and their meetings were once a month. And part of being the secular Car- Carmelite, of course, means going to the monthly meetings. Right. But working at a parish <laughs> Sunday morning right. wouldn't work. <laughs> so there's a lot going on Sunday mornings. Right. <laughs> so I thought, well, I guess that's not in the cards. It seems really interesting, but it's not going to happen. But um, since then, and years, years later, the... One group, the St. Joseph's group, split in two because they were so large, and now there's a second group called the Our Lady of Mount Carmel group hmm. that um, meets on Saturday morning. So when I discovered that that had happened, I, I realized that it was now possible for me to consider that that vocation and uh, started attending actually with my mom because oh wow yeah so my mom and I have been have been uh, in formation together and then we made our definitive wow. promises together this this March. Oh my gosh! Wow. That's really interesting. So does that mean that you've been going there once a month, every Saturday once a month for like several years? Uh, yes, yes, every Saturday. I mean, of course, we've missed a, a few, but, right. but generally speaking, um, every Saturday once a month, excuse me, once Saturday a month yeah. um, um, for eight years or so. Wow, wow. And what's that process like? What are you, What are they, is it mostly educational? Is it? know more of a retreat type atmosphere like you know prayer versus study what's kind of going on during those meetings 
Or is this is this top secret? Is this no, like no. we're pulling back the curtain? <laughs> like you have to be a third year member before we can find out. <laughs> I'm not supposed to tell you. But right. Um, no, it's both prayer and study. I mean, more heavily on prayer, I'd say, than on study. But there's definitely a study component. Um, mm-hmm. So so we gather in the morning. We start with mass, and then we have have 30 minutes of silent adoration. Oh wow! And then we pray liturgy of the hours together, morning prayer. And from there, there's a short business meeting, which might only be 15 minutes. There's mm-hmm. usually not a whole lot of business to cover. Then there's some sort of presentation, some sort of spiritual reflection, which is reminiscent of a, of a retreat. It's not like high academic material. Right. And then we break up into, into classes, and we have an hour-long class, depending on what level of formation we're in. Oh, and wow. from there, um, so we're usually there from about... Um, eight until 12. Okay. Um, and in those classes, you're learning about some of the great doctors of the church and the Carmelite tradition. There's some reading that you do during the month uh, along the way mm-hmm. that you're discussing when you gather together. So it's a pretty informal discussion when you're gathering because you've already read the material and, and okay. you're, you're um, having the opportunity to discuss what you've learned. Yeah, yeah. And so is there kind of a set reading list, like you're reading through some of the more prominent Carmelite authors or? Yes, there is a, a set reading list okay. for the formation program. So just to give you an overview of, of uh, not two in the weeds, but an overview right. of the process, start off just as a visitor coming for a few months just to, to participate in the meeting, see what it looks like. And at that point, you're not attending a class. You, you'll leave a little early once everybody oh, okay, goes okay. to their classes. After you decide that you would like to officially begin formation, then there's an interview process, which is just a, a short interview with, with the, the council of, of leadership. And uh, if admitted, then you begin classes. And those classes are 12 sessions, so a year where okay. you're learning at that point the, the basics of what it means to be a secular Carmelite mm. um, and learning a little bit about the history of the order and a little bit about Carmelite spirituality. After 12 months, then you have another interview in which um, you are invited to, to advance. You, you would receive then the ceremonial scapular okay. and begin preparation for first promises, mm. which is a two-year process. So two years of formation where you're reading from St. Teresa of Avila, especially like the way of perfection. Yeah. And then um, after two years, then you begin, um, you make your first promises and you begin your final stage of preparation, which is a three-year process of uh, preparation for final promises um, in which you would definitively promise to, to live the Carmelite life um, for the rest of your life. Okay. Okay. So yeah, what, I mean, what exactly are you promising? Cause I mean, I'm sh- assuming you're not promising obedience to a Carmelite superior. Are you, you are, um, you are in a sense. Really? You, yes. So the, 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 uh, four promises mm-hmm. are poverty, chastity, and obedience within the lay state of life. So that okay. looks, that looks very different yeah. than, than, than you would, would expect for a friar or, or none. Yeah. So, in practical matters, the obedience simply means uh, uh, obedience within the context of of the the meetings and the structure of the order. There's there's no friar telling me how to live my life at okay. home. Okay, <laughs> you don't have like a Carmelite spiritual director or 
Not necessarily. Okay. No, I, I do not. Um, okay. So, so you don't necessarily have a Carmelite spiritual director. So it's not intrusive in that way, but mm-hmm. it but it does include um, general obedience to especially the rule of uh, of the Carmelite order, um, and so poverty, chastity, obedience, and then um, living the Beatitudes as the hmm. fourth. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I'm assuming, you know, chastity, right? You're married, so right. this means, like, continue to practice that within your marriage. Right? That's right. So, so it means a spirit of chastity. Mm-hmm. Um, so not celibacy, of course, right. but, but a spirit of chastity, which everybody's called to. So that's, right, not, right. that's not something that's unique to Carmelites. We're all called to be chaste right, uh, within right. the context of marriage or not. Um, and similarly, poverty... That doesn't mean not owning anything because uh-huh. obviously you have to own things in order to support a family. And it, but, yeah. we, but all of us, every Christian is called to a spirit of poverty. The catechism, catechism says detachment from riches is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. So all of us are called to a, a spirit of detachment, even though we have to own things. So, um, And then finally, living out the Beatitudes is the, the unique promise of the Carmelites of, of all three branches. Okay, okay. So, I mean, you know, you're you're married, so your wife, you, you pretty much have everything in common, so the spirit of, po- or the promise of poverty kind of includes her in a way, doesn't it, or? Right, and working for the church, that comes pretty naturally. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just teasing, but, <laughs> but, um, but again, we, we are all called to a, to a spirit of detachment from material things in order yeah. to grow in holiness. And yes, it, that would include um, her because mm-hmm. because uh, if if I'm not going to have a lot, then she's not going to have a lot. <laughs> right. She gets like a separate closet, you know, and you have like a little one hanger <laughs> with your brown her, shirts. No, <laughs> her wardrobe's bigger, but I don't yeah, think yeah, yeah. <laughs> huh? And and now is the thing about living the beatitudes is, is that something that all Carmelites promise, or just the secular Carmelites? As I understand it, that's all Carmelites. Okay. That's the, okay. one of the unique charisms of, of the I didn't know that. I've I've grown I've grown in the past couple of years to have a really I think deeper appreciation and fascination with the Beatitudes. I think as a child maybe or as an adolescent, like you kind of hear the Beatitudes phrase as these sort of I don't know, trite statements mm-hmm. that don't really seem very deep. You know, it's kind of like you know, blessed are the peacemakers, and you just kind of imagine somebody, like, frolicking. You're like, oh, yeah, just be peaceful. And, I mean, as I've studied them more, you realize, like, how kind of radical they are, really, that the things that Jesus is saying you're blessed are not the things, like, you know, when people talk about, oh, I'm so blessed, they're usually talking about the things they own, the things they've acquired, you know, their health and, and all of that. And Jesus never says, blessed are the healthy and blessed are the wealthy. It's, like, it kind of subversive in exactly. a way. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And not to cut you off. No, but, no. But that, that word blessed is a, is a loaded term that mm. means truly happy. It, mm. So he's, he's saying that the path to happiness lies in, just as you said, this kind of renunciation. So blessed are the poor in spirit, yeah. the first beatitude. If we want to find true happiness, then we're called to this this simplicity of heart, to this detachment, this this humility that is laid out in, in all of the Beatitudes. Yeah, yeah. Now, do they give any kind of practical tenets for how you live a specific Beatitude? 
Not exactly. Okay. But w- one thing I, I should lay out pretty clearly is the the practical discipline of daily life that's mm. part of being a Carmelite. And, okay. and maybe I can just get back to the Beatitudes if yeah. you'd like after that. But as Carmelites, as secular Carmelites, we commit to praying the Liturgy of the Hours, so morning and evening prayer. Okay. And to praying um, an examination of conscience, preferably within the context of night prayer. Night prayer is not strictly required. Okay. We also commit to 30 minutes of mental prayer, so 30 minutes of of daily Christian meditation of some kind. Okay. And to the monthly meetings, as I mentioned. Oh, so you continue that even after you've made your final promises. You keep going back once a month? That's right. So right, that's part part of the the promises to be part of that community. Oh, wow. So it's in that context that there's this level of obedience that you're, you're... Oh, I see. You're living within this community it's not imposing exactly on on the details of my life at home but but right. it is but there there's a certain humility that comes just with being the part of a of a, a monthly community yeah right? yeah um and then in addition we were called to required to have as you would expect, some devotion to Mary. Mm-hmm. That's not laid out. It's not as if you have to pray exactly the rosary every day or pray this specific Marian prayer every day, but we are called to have some sort of Marian devotion. Okay. And um, and then perhaps most obviously to wear the scapular, okay. um, which is an external sign of membership in the Carmelite community. And you're supposed to wear it at all times? Yes, that's correct, but okay. not not like when I'm showering. Okay, right. I mean, yeah. And people laugh, you know. <laughs> make, make, makes sense. You can never take it off <laughs> right. or else you'll die immediately. <laughs> right. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So when they talk about mental prayer for as part of, I guess, your rule of life, mm-hmm. is that also kind of laid out or could it be, you could be reading or you could just be interior dialoguing with God or you could be just sitting silently in adoration? Like, is there a more specified way of, like, what your mental prayer needs to look like? There is not a specified way okay. of what your mental prayer should look like. So all of those things that you mentioned would could be considered mental prayer. So mental prayer simply means a prayer that engages the mind, the heart, mm-hmm. uh, because St. Teresa of Avila points out, as I think many of us who hopefully are mature in faith understand, that we're not really praying if we're not, if we're not, addressing the person that we're supposed to be talking to. Yeah. You know, if we're just <laughs> rattling off a bunch of words, that's not right, really right. really the prayer that we're called to. So mental in the sense that it engages the interior, but that might mean adoration, that might mean uh, scriptural reflection, Lexio Divina, that might include, uh, it could include the rosary. Mm-hmm. The rosary is, is intended, yeah. right, it's intended to be um, meditative. So there's a lot of flexibility in mm-hmm. what that might include. Wow, yeah. And so, and that's, I guess, seven days a week. Like that's that's right. kind of regimented. Yes. Wow. Yes, but but one thing that is explained in formation is that if if there's a day when life is just crazy, then thirty minutes doesn't have to be thirty continuous minutes. Okay. If you can if you can do fifteen minutes in the morning, fifteen minutes in the evening, then that's that's sufficient. Right. Um, so, I think most of us, if we can fit in. An episode of our favorite show from <laughs> Netflix or whatever, yeah. then we can fit in thirty minutes. Of, I agree. Of yeah. No, I know that's like the best thing I've ever done is to just literally set a timer on my phone mm-hmm. and be like, "Okay, this is prayer time." And sometimes I'm distracted and sometimes I'm more focused. But to just, 
I, I almost I, I almost need to do that, like to have some kind of external thing to say, okay, when this dings, you know, you've you've completed your right. <laughs> no, that's what I, I that's what I do too. And when I'm when I'm feeling really old school, um, this this past year, my wife bought me a thirty minute uh, hourglass from Hobby Lobby. Oh no so, way! Yeah, so, uh, oh yes, right. I love that. <laughs> so just turn it over. I haven't timed it exactly, but I assume right. the label was correct. <laughs> right. No, I I tr- I actually tried to find an hourglass. I think I just got it like Ross or Marshall or something, and it was like a three minute hourglass. I'm like, this is. This is useless. <laughs> like, when am I going to set a three-minute Hobby Lobby is the place to go. Yeah. Well, you know, it makes sense. They're kind of in the Christian tradition, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So St. Therese actually talks about using an hourglass, which is yeah? where I got the idea oh, from. Oh, wow. So she's talking about her struggles in prayer and how... She would she would tap the hourglass because <laughs> <laughs> it didn't seem to be working. I love so, that. <laughs> so uh, she was human too. Yeah, no kidding. Wow. And I've managed not to tap the thirty minute hourglass, so right. I'm feeling good about that. Right. <laughs> so, are there particular Carmelite um, saints that you resonated with early on in your spiritual life? Definitely. So, I, I think the first that I really encountered would have been St. Therese. Mm, yeah. I think she's most people's kind of gateway into right. Carmelite spirituality. Yes, e- exactly. And um, that, that's in large part because my mom and, and my grandmother um, had a, a devotion mm. to St. To Therese. So so I was aware of, of St. Therese growing up. And then I hadn't really read anything of, of St. Therese. I hadn't read a story of his soul, but... Shortly after college, I was um, I was on a retreat and went to confession. I don't even remember what I confessed, to be perfectly honest. But for a penance, the priest told me to to uh, buy a story of a soul and to find a particular passage in it. Um, huh. And and that was like very he told daunting. you the passage to find, or he just said open it up and no, he he told me these these circumstances okay. the, that's described in there huh. that I should find, and it was vague enough to make me anxious about oh, what if I don't find it? But right, right. <laughs> I don't know what he's talking right. about. Right, but um, but I bought um, a copy that day actually, and um, and was able to read through it, and eventually found the passage he was talking about. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I don't even remember exactly what what the mm. circumstance was or what the prescribed passage was. But reading that was was beneficial to me. So I guess the Holy Spirit was at work there, even though right. my anxiety didn't like it. Right. <laughs> right. No, it, I sh- that was the first, like, I guess, spiritual autobiography or saint writing that I ever read. I think I read it my senior year of high school. And I didn't understand a word of it. It didn't make any sense to me. And I remember she kept talking about the word oblation, and I had never even heard that word before. I'm like, what is an oblation, <laughs> you know? And it, but I mean, she the devotion also stuck with me, even though nothing she said made any sense sure. at the time. Yeah, and to be honest, I think that the Carmelite saint that resonated most with me, or more with me, was uh, Saint Teresa of Avila. Shortly oh, after. okay. So, so in in college now. I had picked up a copy of the Interior Castle and read through parts of it. And um, in that book, she describes the progress of the, the spiritual life using the analogy of a castle, the soul is like a castle with, with God in the middle, and mm-hmm. we're progressing towards the center of the castle. And I read the beginning parts of that with uh, a great deal of, 
of uh, appreciation that she was describing what I felt like I was experiencing. Mm. But as I as I got farther in, I thought, what in the world is she talking about? <laughs> <laughs> because I guess I, I wasn't that far, and I, I'm still perhaps I'm yeah. still not. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I I think I read I haven't read The Interior Castle, but I've read some books that quote a lot from her or from mm-hmm. other spiritual writers, and I remember them saying like. Yeah, if, you, if you're not completely detached from being your sin, you're, like, not even in the first castle <laughs> or something like that. And I was like, oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if it, once you get to, the like, the sixth and the seventh mansions of, of this castle, you start to, to think, wow, I still have a long way to go. Yeah, that's scary. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it's – but you know what I think of? I think of, like, with, um, you know, Olympians. It's like – well, okay, like, so I'm kind of like a – casual runner that's like the sport the only sport I've ever really done and so I did I did a little bit of cross country in high school and then I didn't you know just kind of ran casually and then I did a 5k a couple years ago and my time I didn't meet the time goal that I set for myself and it wasn't really that good of a time I was running like 10 minute miles but I got a medal for my age group (laughs) and like running this non-competitive 5k was like at a, a winery like I saw how few average people can even run three miles, mm-hmm. like you know, without stopping. Sure. But then I think about you know, co- collegiate runners and how much more they can run and how much faster they can run. And then you think about like Olympians, and it's like, even though me being able to run three miles puts me probably in the like upper fiftieth percentile, you know, of all humans, like it's nothing compared to like. The, the collegiate athletes or the pro athletes or the Olympians. And it's like the higher you get, the more, I mean, even the gap probably between the person who wins the gold medal and the person who comes in last at the Olympics is right. probably so vast. And yet that person is so much far beyond like the normal collegiate athlete. And I have to imagine it's kind of like that in the spiritual life where it's like, yeah, even though you're in the top, like let's, I mean, I don't even know if we can quantify these things and say you're in the top five fifth in the 95th percentile of holiness but like i imagine the distance between like the 99th and the 98th is as vast as like you know the distance between the 50th and the first or something that's a great great analogy i think one of the the things that i do love about carmelite spirituality though especially saint therese Mm -hmm. uh, whom i have have come to love is that it's not meant to be a Pelagian, uh, pull mm-hmm. yourself up by your own bootstraps mm-hmm. kind of thing. It's it's really about a, a surrender to mm-hmm. to God's grace in prayer. So Saint Therese is is big on on that concept of just letting God do the heavy lifting. So yeah. so if you if you uh, perhaps recall from the story of the soul, she's talking about at a time when elevators were just being invented. She's talking about how. We are called um, to to rely on God's grace and let Him lift us up, rather than rather than climbing the stairs. And mm-hmm. uh, how in the garden of God's grace there are mighty oaks, but then there are there are tiny little flowers. And um, in some ways, it's better just to be the, the little flower. <laughs> the little flower, yeah. Well, it's and it's fascinating to contrast that with. I know she. I mean, first of all, like from a very young age, she desperately wanted to be a nun like she traveled mm-hmm. to the Vatican to see if she could get permission to enter early and you know there's that passage in her her book where she's talking about like you know I want to be a missionary and I want to be a martyr and I want to be everything you right. know and so you kind of see these like she, she had bold dreams 
so to speak. Right. Um, and yet you contrast that with her like contentness of like being this little flower. That's exactly right. And I've thought a lot about that, that tension. I mean, I haven't worked out it out yeah. exactly <laughs> because there is a tension there. On the one hand, there's this, this longing for greatness, but at the same time, an awareness that true greatness comes from acknowledging our littleness and, mm. and and seeing our our need for God's grace, rather than again um, just some sort of um, self self mastery by the right. by our own sheer willpower. Right. Um, there's a, there's a place for that, of course. Um, so John, John of the Cross would certainly talk a lot about the need for mortification, the need mm. for renunciation. Um, but even he, of course, would emphasize that that it's God's grace that helps us do what we can't do because we right. can't we can't just push ourselves and punish ourselves into holiness. Right, <laughs> you know, it's right. Not, that's not the way this works. Right. Well, this is something I've been thinking about too. Is you know, especially in Aquinas, you get this idea of like grace perfects nature. Mm-hmm. You know, and I look at certain people who are not necessarily super devout or super, or maybe they're not even Christian. They're just kind of secular people and certain aspects of their natural life are just so orderly, Mm -hmm. you know, like get up early, get their exercise in, eat well, you know, keep the house, like just all these kind of great natural things. Um, And maybe even a lot of like natural virtue. And then I think about like myself sometimes where I like struggle with the natural, like the basic, Mm -hmm. you know, the basic regimented things. And I wonder, like, am I just sort of kidding myself to think I'm like spiritual, you know, is the grace really perfecting the nature? And, or, and, you know, are those people who are already so good and orderly on a natural level, are they just like, you know, if, if they get in touch with grace, are they just going to catapult, you know, to the, to the heights? We can hope so. We hope right. that they get in touch <laughs> right. with grace. Absolutely. But I think part of that, both Aquinas and St. Therese, as, as you mentioned from that passage where she talks about longing to be a martyr and mm. longing to to uh, to be an evangelist or an apostle uh, both of them would would point out that charity is the heart of all of the virtues mm. so if we have charity in the fullest sense love of God and love of neighbor so not just a superficial giving money to the poor kind of charity but a, right. a, in the fullest sense the charity of, of loving God wholeheartedly loving our neighbor unconditionally, if we have that, then um, all of the other virtues, on the one hand, are going to start to fall into place, but on the other hand, they're they're secondary hmm. because we can actually come to love our imperfections, our vol- our involuntary imperfections, as opportunities to just trust in God's mercy. Wow, wow! Because I, on this side of heaven, we'll we'll never be free of. Involuntary imperfections—they'll always be there, right? But we can grow in the perfection of charity, right? Right. Well, it also makes me wonder, like, what is the difference between an imperfection and maybe like a venial sin? You know, I mean, obviously, I don't know, because like, like sometimes you sin more so out of weakness and it's kind of like like what St. Paul says like I do what I hate I don't do what I want the good that I want to do and it's, so there's a, a sense in which it's not fully voluntary but you're still kind of recognizing I shouldn't be doing this but I'm doing this anyways you know versus like it, is an involuntary imperfection just something like 
well, I'm kind of messy or I, I'm not always on time or I don't know, like what's the difference? <laughs> I, th- I think you're, you're right that the, um, that we sometimes do have these instances where we, we know we shouldn't do something, even if it's a tiny thing, but we do it anyway. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's really what we need to caution ourselves against. And St. Ter- Teresa of Avila, when she's talking about the interior castle, I couldn't point, pinpoint exactly where it is in the progression, but she points out um, the, the um, refusal to do any voluntary venial sin as, as a requirement for progressing. So, yeah. so if, we, if we're going to hold on to those, those venial sins that are in our control, then that's going to keep us from moving forward. But on the other hand, I, th- I think that there are imperfections, um, and I don't, I'm not sure exactly how to delineate the differences between an involuntary yeah. imperfection and, and an uh, involuntary venial sin. That's probably beyond my pay grade. But, yeah. um, but, um, but there are little things like that that if we could fix them out of love for God, we would. Yeah. But um, if you need proof that, that, uh, that I've got involuntary imperfections you can look at my desk in my office <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and um there's probably some venial sin involved in that 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 i'm not intentionally doing but sure. but part of part of it is just that you know my mind is everywhere i'm, the, right, I'm, I'm, right. A, I'm not really organized and <laughs> yeah. my wife is the one that's good at that <laughs> but, yeah but, yeah um but uh i trust the lord doesn't hold that against me because he sees sees my good intentions mm. um, um and i, I don't have you ever seen the, the picture of Saint uh, Maximilian Kolbe's desk? No, um, but I've heard it mentioned that okay. it was kind of a wreck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you ever are in doubt of of uh, the possibility of being a saint with him right. as a desk, just look at his, that pic. Look for that picture. Right. And because we have internet now, unlike back in yeah. the days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I think that's important to highlight because, especially in this age of social media and. I don't know if you're on Instagram, but I am. And you see a lot of aspirational lifestyles where people have their house and everything is aesthetically coordinated and, you know, everything they eat is like perfectly healthy and perfectly balanced. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they show off their lifestyle and and maybe they're, you know, I'm I'm sure with many of them, they're not showcasing. There's things they're choosing to leave out, but you just see, you're like, oh, you have a beautiful house and you have a beautiful routine and you have a beautiful you know, healthy lifestyle and all those things. And, and you can, I think we can mistake those for virtues. Right. Um, when, I mean, they're, they're not bad, but they're not, it's, you're not more virtuous because you eat like vegetables at every meal. <laughs> sure. And that idea of, of having a perfectly ordered house, I think mm-hmm. it reminds me of the, the well-known story of, of Martha and Mary. Mm. And although there, there's an aspect that in which, or there's a sense in which we need to have both Martha and Mary, and each of us should have a, a bit of Martha and a bit of Mary because we we can't just can be completely passive in life. Right. Um, time is limited, and yeah. we we don't um, have time to perfect everything. Um, if we're going to focus on one th- one thing, Jesus says the one thing necessary is what mm-hmm. Mary's doing. It's sitting at his feet. It's spending time in prayer, um, which is what we do as Carmelites. Right. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I'm I'm curious with. Um, you know, not to be too personal, but like, you know, being married, having four kids, like, does it ever feel like, or, or w- would your wife ever say like, 
Leonard's out off there, like, you know, floating up to heaven, and I'm stuck here, like, doing the dishes while while he, like, gazes in contemplation. <laughs> um, yes, there are times when she would say that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she would say that if I were a Carmelite or not, because that's my disposition. Mm, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. If, if I weren't uh, off at a Carmelite meeting, I'd be in a book somewhere else. Right, so, right, right. <laughs> um, so that is partially by temperament. Um, yeah. But... Um, I, th- I think at the same time, though, sh- again, not to speak for my wife, but um, I do think that, as I've said to her and as she's acknowledged, um, I'm able to to help it the way that I can because I've gotten plugged into mm. to God's grace. If I weren't, then I'd, my disorganized life would be even more disorganized. Mm, yeah, <laughs> so my scattered yeah. brain would be even more scattered. So yeah, by plugging into God's grace, that I'm at least able to offer some semblance of help. At right, <laughs> right. Because I do wonder about that, and I think actually, you often see this. I think more the reverse in couples where like the the wife is like super spiritual, and the guy kind of oh, gets sure. dragged to church, you know. But I do wonder about that, like, uh, you know, that idea of like. You know, how much should, like, a, a husband and wife, like, share their spirituality versus, like, have their own, you know, unique spirituality? And it, it doesn't have to be, obviously, you're both Catholic, you're both mm-hmm. devout Catholics, but, like, you know, to what extent it has to be something where you're trying to, like, combine, you know? Right. And although my wife had spent some time as a, as a Baptist and, you know, kind of, I mentioned she sort of reluctantly came back to the mm-hmm. Catholic Church, she's obviously both feet in and, and full mm-hmm. A wholehearted Catholic now, and she has her own uh, deep spirituality as well. Yeah. Um, less academic, perhaps than mm-hmm. not not perhaps definitely less academically than academic than mine, um, but but uh, no less sincere. And she's the she leads leads our kids in prayer mm-hmm. every day. Um, so just to give a glimpse of, of her spirituality, which is not explicitly Carmelite, um, she starts the morning every day before even getting out of bed um, with reading scripture oh, um, wow. and uh, on on the Laudate app, which mm. she highly recommends to anyone who will listen. And, <laughs> um, then, you know, at, at three o'clock, she leads the kids in the chaplet. Mm. Um, so there's room for lots of different spiritualities in the church for sure, which is, which is a beautiful thing. It is, yeah. So I actually don't even know, what is the origin of the Carmelites? Like, who is is there a founder that's a specific founder? It's traditionally it was traditionally believed that Elijah was the founder of the Carmelites. What? Yeah. What? So <laughs> okay. So there was a pious legend anyway uh, that Elijah was the founder of the Carmelites, and there had been this community of hermits on mm. Mount Carmel for all of these centuries. But the reality that that most people acknowledge today is that at at some point in the 1100s, the late 1100s. Um, in the midst of the Crusades, as as pious pilgrims are, are going over to the Holy Land, some group of hermits set themselves up on Mount Carmel and mm. committed themselves to to live in the spirit of Elijah, mm. in this place where Elijah lived. I, did, I didn't know it had a connection. I mean, I guess I knew there was something about Mount Carmel with Elijah, but I didn't know there was a connection to Elijah with the Carmelites. Yes, that's a very intentional connection. Wow. Um, and so the there's not really a specific founder to point to for the Carmelites. They lived for a number of decades at least, or if you believe the pious legends, for a number of centuries <laughs> right. um, at, at Mount Carmel. And then in the early 1200s, around 1210, they asked 
the Patriarch of Jerusalem for a rule. Um, so he, this is uh, Saint Albert of Jerusalem. He writes the rule for the Carmelites. This rule. is this is what what century? The thirteenth century, twelve ten or so. Okay, and so help me out here. So the Patriarch of Jerusalem, like, were they? Because this, this is after the East West split. So right, this is a Latin patriarch. This is a Latin patriarch. Okay, okay. Right. So he writes a rule for the Carmelites. A very short rule. I mean, it, it'll fit on the back front and back of a page. Oh, wow. And it describes how to live a life in allegiance to Christ and describes the basic way of life that, that this community was to have. But they only stayed initially on Mount Carmel for a few decades because mm-hmm. things became pretty intense with the ongoing crusades in that area. And so they moved back to Europe by the, the middle of the 13th century and then began to take root in, in Europe, especially in England. And from there, that's where we find the, the, the story of St. Simon Stock and receiving the scapular. Mm, um, okay, okay. So when they moved from the Holy Land to England, initially they, they were a bit uh, like fish out of water. They, they were already flourishing religious orders, the Dominicans and the Franciscans. Right. And it seems that people were looking a little side-eyed at the Carmelites, <laughs> wondering, why do we need another religious order? And St. Simon Stock, who was the superior general at the time, is praying fervently for some place for the Carmelites, if you will, in um, in the life of the church and for, for some heavenly assistance for um, the Carmelite order. And as the story goes, on uh, July 16th of 1251, Mm-hmm. Uh, Our Lady appears to him and gives him this habit, the the, the scapular. Yeah. Um, and says, whoever dies wearing this this garment will not experience uh, eternal fire mm-hmm. or something to those effects. Um, and so from there, the Carmelite order really begins to, to expand significantly, um, both in popular piety, but also in, in their their structure. More and more people begin to become Carmelite. Um, and and from there, they have continued to flourish. And, yeah. then, and then there's a, a reform of the Carmelite order, which takes place in the 1500s, which is another important part of the history. So St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross begin to experience that the Carmelites are... are um, too lax in mm. their, their following of the, the rule and begin to take steps to reform the order to restore its more uh, or its original intentions. And then you end up with the discalced Carmelites, which is the part of the order that I'm a member of. Okay. Uh, discalced meaning shoeless because they, they tended to wear sandals instead oh, of shoes. So why you're wearing sandals today. I, I decided to wear sandals today. <laughs> Go discalced. Right. I'm going discalced today. <laughs> right. So, um, so then... Then there were actually two orders, and, and are two orders. Oh, There's the, really? The, um, the Carmelites of the Ancient Observance, okay. the, the original order, and the discalced Carmelites that follow the the reform of Teresa of Avila and John mm. of the Cross. And do you, did the ones of the Ancient Observance, um, are they a lot smaller today? Do you have any idea if they're... I don't know anything about the numbers, okay. um, about okay. which is larger. I think that when most people think of the Carmelites, they're probably thinking more about Teresa of Avila and yeah. John of the Cross and Teresa yeah. of Lisieux. Those are all discalced okay. Carmelite saints. Okay. 
and <laughs> this is a dumb question, but do they do they have to wear sandals? No. Oh, okay. No, not a, okay. That was never a rule. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. It I'm was like, just more like a nickname. That, that okay. Came, okay. It like, became their official name. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I got to go to Lisieux last summer. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and visit. Um, there's a museum that's like dedicated to St. Therese. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I saw her shoes. I don't think they were sandals. <laughs> yes, they wore shoes. And, and they still wear shoes, I'm sure. Right, right, right. <laughs> And now the people who give you formation, are they all secular Carmelites or do you get to hear from some of the um, consecrate or r- religious nuns or priests? The immediate formation does come from secular Carmelites, okay. but we frequently have visitors from the friars and the, the friars are the um, technically the superiors of, okay. the, of the order. Okay. So um, the leg- legislation and the the uh, more immediate guidance of how the order is run, I mean, even the local council, that comes from the, the friars. Okay. And are, do they all become priests, or do some remain as, as brothers? I, I, my understanding is that some do remain as brothers, okay. but to be honest, I don't know a whole lot okay. about, about uh, the life of the friars. Yeah, yeah. So when you kind of look at your, your journey, like from when you first were inquiring about the the secular Carmelites to when you made your your final promises. What kind of changes did you notice in yourself, like going through that process? Did you feel like a a new person, you know, <laughs> um, or did it kind of just feel like an incremental deepening? Good question. I've I've often thought that when I felt the call to become Carmelite, it's because I sensed that my spirituality was already Carmelite. Hmm. It, it, it just fit. Hmm. Um, so the Carmelite spirituality is fairly simple in that, th- there, as you were asking earlier, there isn't really a, a um, particular model of prayer that you have to follow. There's a lot of, a lot of room for variety of 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 the way that you pray, mm-hmm. um, and yet the the doctors of the church from the Carmelite order, uh, Therese of Lisieux, Teresa of Avila, and John of the Cross, they described the spiritual life in a way that just resonated. Mm-hmm. Now, again, as I mentioned before, there are a lot of things that I haven't yet experienced yet, and so I'm not right. claiming to to right. have mastered what they teach. But but what they teach just fit. Mm. Does that make sense? Um, and so I, I think in some ways it's been a matter of just being able to continue to, by God's grace, progress along that same path that I was already on. Mm-hmm. And um, I haven't really mentioned another another saint, but uh, one of my favorite saints was somebody that, that um, I w- already had a devotion to and uh, who was a someone to consider a companion, Elizabeth of the Trinity, a Mm -hmm. lesser-known saint. Um, She really describes what I had come to understand about prayer, that she talks about how how God, the Trinity, just dwells within us and Mm. how prayer is is about growing in intimacy of the Lord, with the Lord who who lives within us. Um, There's a prayer in the, the catechism from Elizabeth of the Trinity begins, "O Trinity, whom I adore," and I won't—I couldn't quote the entire yeah. thing. But the but the 
basic idea is that the Trinity is, is within us, and um, prayer is simply cooperating with the one who by grace dwells in our hearts through through baptism and, mm. of course, through Holy Communion. Hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people struggle, myself included, struggle with like kind of Trinitarian prayer in the sense that it's easier to address the Father or address the Son or address the Holy Spirit and you know, when I see these prayers that are like, oh, adorable Trinity, I'm like, I don't even know how to, con- I mean, yeah, I can't even almost conceptualize the idea of communing with the Trinity. Yeah, I don't know. Can you can you talk a little bit about what that even means or, or what it, how we can grow to pray in like this Trinitarian fashion? Yeah, <laughs> it's right. a tall order, but. No, well, that's why I wrote my master's thesis on. Oh, so it is? Really? Oh, I didn't <laughs> yeah. know that. Yeah, so. Um, I wrote it on the, one of the phrases in the that's repeated in the documents of the churches through Christ to the Father in the Holy Spirit. Mm. So it's a it's an idea that's that's close to my heart. And the reason why I decided to write on that, not that I was trying to toot my own horn or whatever, but the the basic idea that I discovered in the writings of the church is, especially in the writings of Pope Saint John Paul II, um, is that the whole of the Christian life is about allowing the Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of Jesus so that we can become children of the Father. Hmm. So each person of the Trinity is is at work within us in a different way. So the Spirit helps us to overcome our our sin and helps us to, to become more and more like Christ until our hearts, like Jesus, cry out, Abba, Father. And the whole of the Christian life is about... Jesus wanting to introduce us to the Father. Hmm. Um, Jesus, for example, in the the Last Supper discourse, when he gives the new commandment, and he's talking about the the call to love, in this case, the call to love our neighbor, uh, like, like he loves us, he says, I have told you this so that my joy would be in you and your joy would be complete. So I imagine Jesus as as someone whose heart is overflowing with joy in communion with the Father. Yeah. And his deepest longing is to to draw us up into that same love. And so uh, the catechism talks about how we are called to share in this eternal exchange of the Trinity. One, mm-hmm. my, my favorite paragraph of the the catechism is um, 221. So I, I remember hey. that one. That's probably <laughs> the only paragraph number that yeah. I can mention. <laughs> But it says that God has revealed his innermost secret. God himself is an eternal exchange of love, and he's invited us to share in that exchange. So I imagine the, the Father and the Son for all of eternity loving each other perfectly. And the love that they share is the Holy Spirit that is, that is poured out between them. And then the whole of the Christian life is us getting to participate in that through Mm -hmm. grace. So the Holy Spirit being given to us so that we might become children of God and we too might learn to receive and give that love of God as people who are created in the image of God and who have the capability of loving. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think that. Yeah. No, it's, it's profound um, and, and baffling and yet, um, I don't know. It, it. I like it because I think, I think as human beings, you know, when we try to be rational and logical, our our 
version of, of that is always to be a very linear kind of thinker, like A, then B, then C, then D. And like God kind of uh, transcends that sort of linear linear way of thinking. And, and when we come to know God as, as three in one, you know, mysteriously three persons, yet one God, co-equal, co-eternal, consubstantial, it's like, I don't know, it's like our souls expand beyond this like linear way of thinking where it's like, you know, there's one God and there's one me and we have a one-to-one relationship, sure. you know, yeah. and it just kind of, like that almost seems too natural maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I might be speaking gibberish, but. <laughs> well, it's definitely a mystery and I don't claim to have mastered it. I mean, I, yeah. I think that's that's what we'll be pondering for right. all of eternity. <laughs> right. So. <laughs> right. But so is there kind of an order to it though? Like, should you begin by addressing the Holy Spirit and have the Holy Spirit, you know, bring you to the Son who's going to bring you to the Father or should you start the Father? It, it, like, is there really any order to it or is it kind of this back and forth sort of? I, I don't think, I don't think that there's really necessarily an order to it, mm-hmm. except that I would say the the most tangible of the persons of the Trinity is, of course, Jesus. Right, so, right. So nine times out of ten, I would say we begin with some sort of encounter with Jesus. Mm. And um, and it's only through him that the Trinity makes sense. And that, that's, yeah. that's another thing that I, I've come to appreciate. We Often as kids, we'll learn about the Trinity as this kind of abstract formula. Yeah. Three persons and one God. And we right. imagine the Trinity just floating out there. Right. <laughs> which, of course, he does. I mean, he's beyond, he's beyond creation. But we wouldn't be able to have any conception of the Trinity unless one of the persons of the Trinity had taken on flesh. Mm. And so it's really ev- only within contact with Jesus that we were able to make sense in, in any real way of the Trinity. Yeah. We, we begin to understand his experience as son and his experience as someone who's spirit-filled. And then we have something to hold on to because he's he's flesh like us. <laughs> right, right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. So much to ponder. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, that's beautiful. So, um, kind of wrap this up. Is there, you know, is there anything that you're kind of you've been praying with or meditating with lately um, from the Carmelite tradition that, um, you know, kind of a, a nugget of wisdom or, or spiritual um, insights that you can impart to us? <laughs> sure. Let me ponder that. I'm really putting you on the spot there. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, you know, maybe anything that you're reading in the formation group right now or. Right. Well, right now I'm I'm leading um, the Definitive Promises group in reading the story of a soul. Oh, wow. Um, because we're preparing as an order for, well, and as a church, for the 100th, 150th anniversary, I think, of the birth of St. Therese, if I'm, um, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I'm trying to, th- yeah. I, I don't when, really when know. Is that, what uh, year is that? Yeah, good question. I've forgotten. <laughs> okay, but it's not. Is it this year? Or is it next year? Next year. If next I'm year. Not okay, twenty twenty four. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll have to. I'll have to remind myself. Of that. Yeah, but yeah. I know that um, that the the uh, Carmelite order has been has been um, emphasizing Therese quite mm-hmm. a bit as of late. Okay, but but also um, as the now instructor of the def- the Definitive Promises class, I've been reading the story of a soul again. 
actually one thing that does stick out from the story of a soul is something that I was just reading this past month. And it's this this image of Saint Therese when she t- she talks about how so few of us learn to to stay at the foot of the cross in prayer. Mm. Um, and she she says she has this this image of of Jesus on the cross and his 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 blood being shed and and being poured out, but no one is there to gather it up. Mm. And she says that. Our job as intercessors, and she does say particularly as Carmelites, is to stand at the foot of the cross and gather up that grace through mm. intercession and, and through intercession pour it out on the world mm. to gather up the grace of Jesus and, and just pray that it be shed on, on the rest of the world. So that, that's part of the task of, of prayer to, to um, allow ourselves to be formed in the, the image of Jesus, but also to be so filled with that grace that we can um, allow God to help us share that with others, um, not just in the act of works of mercy, which is important, but also in the spiritual work of mercy, of praying for other mm. people. In, yeah. some way, in some way, our participation in prayer is necessary for the salvation of the world. Um, the, yeah. the, um, in the, the apparition of Our Lady of Fatima I believe it was Lucia reported that Our Lady said that so many souls go to hell because they have no one to pray for them. Mm. Um, and uh, that's a dismal thought. But yeah. b- but, yeah. <laughs> but oh, we, all, we all have this call, not just Carmelites, but every Catholic, to just to pray for, pray for the world and pray for, pray for ourselves, of course, pray for our own holiness, our own sanctification, but to pray, um, pray for everyone to encounter Christ, um, not not with just some gloomy fear of hell, but right. because we've come to know Him and love Him, and we right. want other people to experience that as well. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. It's, um, and I think I think I was reading that too in Soul of the Apostle the other day. Like, same thing. Like this idea that God, um, you know, He set up the economy of salvation in such a way that we would participate. He doesn't need our participation. He could individually reach each soul in a very direct way. But like, I mean, it kind of fits with what you're saying earlier about the Trinity too. Like he, th- like this idea of participation in, in, um, you know, it's not just this linear thing. Like God saves you, God saves you, God saves you. Like we're kind of, I don't know, like there's this inner communion even within the body of Christ and then directing us towards the Trinity and um, like that's that's actually kind of a, a marvelous thing that God, <laughs> you know, he, he knows we're not going to do as good of a job as he is, but he wants us to be participants in this, this you know, work of salvation. Right. It's, it's both daunting and beautiful. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm going to screw it up, but also like, wow, <laughs> you want me to help? Wow. <laughs> right. Yeah. And as a parent, that's that's uh, something that I struggle with, mm-hmm. but it's something. Let me. I'll explain what I mean. Um, I, sometimes I just have this tendency to just kind of do it myself, and and yeah. and, and you because you got the got the little kids, especially when they're little kids, and you think, well, it's so much easier if I just made this cake myself right. instead of letting them help. But you also learn that it's it's so much more beautiful when they participate mm-hmm. when when they help make dinner even or help make the cake or help whatever, um, even if the product is 
is um, a little bit inferior to than what right. it would have been because because it's doing something in them, right? Uh, because it because it has benefited them in the same way. I think God, if He just did everything Himself, would would be wouldn't be allowing us to become adults. You know, mm, he, he wouldn't right. be, he wouldn't be allowing us to to become um, uh, more beautiful humans. Yeah. Yeah, and I may mean, think like what what brings you more delight? Like if you were to sit down and draw a, a picture of a house that's you know pretty you know symmetrical versus like I mean your kids are a little older now, but like you know a three year old scribbling something and they're like, Dad, look what I made you! Like that is going to bring so much more joy to you than like your exactly. own better painting. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So what a beautiful idea that God loves us so much that He allows us to participate. So it's, it's it's daunting, but it's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that very much ties back then to Saint Therese and this just childlike spirituality. And mm-hmm. I think that's something that always has resonated with me. It's like I don't know. Now nowadays in our culture, there's kind of this fear of growing up, and people talk about adulting. Adulting is so <laughs> hard, and uh, you know, so easy when I was a kid. But there is something kind of in the Christian life where you can like you're always like you always get to be a little kid in right. a sense in the yeah, eyes of God. And that's it's exactly like, right. You know, there's something peaceful about that. Right. <laughs> oh, man. Well, this has been a really uh, inspiring conversation, um, and I hope it will inspire people to just get to know the Carmelite family a little bit better. Um, yeah, they're great friends to have. <laughs> well, thanks so much for the invitation, Mary Rose. Absolutely.